So we're going to read the story of David today. And as we look at this story, we're going to see that in order to conquer the giants in our lives, first off, we need to gear up. Also, we need to have a strategy and we need to understand the strategy of the enemy. So today, as we look through 1 Samuel 17, we're going to see some very clear strategies of the enemy that he employed against the Israelite people, against David, but that he still does uh, today towards us. So before we get into that, though, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 11, Paul writes, he says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Look at verse 11, put on all of God's armor. All right, what he's saying is we, we have to gear up. Now, he goes on here a little bit in the next few verses to talk about the type of battle that we're fighting and the enemy that we're facing. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities. It's against darkness, all right? So what Paul was writing here in Ephesians says, listen, every single one of us that follows Jesus, we're enlisted into this army and we're fighting a war. The war is not against people, all right, it's against a very real spiritual enemy. In order to defeat those giants, the, the spiritual enemy out there, the devil, Satan, that wants to destroy us, that wants to kill, steal, and destroy, in order to defeat him, we have to gear up. We have to put on all of God's armor. We have to use the right armor for the battle so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. See, the devil has strategies to derail your life, to derail your purpose, to derail your joy, to steal from you. And he's going to use some strategies that we see in 1 Samuel 17. He's going to use them against us. So we need to know how to combat those. So this morning, as Pastor Gabriel said, you, you might be facing a very real giant in your life right now. But there might be some of you in here that are like, I'm not at the moment. Like, life's pretty good. When I think about fighting giants, I'm reminded of something our old pastor used to say. And he says, if you're not going through a fight or a rough time right now, just hold on, you will be soon. Like, it's a part of life. So if you're in here today and you say, you know what, I'm not really facing a giant today, I want you to still engage and, and think about what we're talking about. You know, take notes of these things, internalize them, because you're going to fight a giant soon. Struggle, hardship is a part of life. You know, your giant today might be the, the health of your marriage. The giant you're facing might be a child that's just going in the wrong direction. The giant you're facing today might be a health crisis. It might be a financial crisis. It might be a, a workplace conflict. It might be a mental or, or emotional battle that you're facing, turmoil that you're going through. See, we all fight giants of different sizes. But just like that snake to me seemed like a really big giant, and you know, and even though it, it wasn't, we should never belittle the giants other people face because we all struggle with different things. We're all in different parts of our faith journey. All right, so here we go. To set the scene here, the Philistine uh, have, army has gotten together and they're attacking Israel. They want to take their land. They're enemies of Israel. They're coming there to kill the Israelites, to steal their property, to steal their land. And in verse 3, 1 Samuel 17. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. Verse 4, then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. I'm not a very tall person. But even to those of you who are tall, nine feet, it's way taller than you. This dude is huge, all right? He's massive. It goes on here in the next few verses to describe his armor, his weapons, just how really big he was. We're going to skip down to verse 8. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. 
Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Now, I want to pause here. The first thing we see right here is the first ploy of the enemy is to try and get us to forget whose we are. We are not the servants of Saul. We are children of God. He was trying to get the Israelite people to forget that they have someone who's much more powerful than Saul by their side, and that's God Almighty. All right. Goliath says, Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. If I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Look at verse 11. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. See, Saul and his men were terrified and deeply shaken. Their first reaction when facing the giant was fear. Their first reaction when facing the giant was fear. This went on, this taunting went on for 40 days. 40 days, Goliath would come out and he would defy the armies of Israel. He would shout this taunt. He said, send somebody out here to fight me. In 40 days, the Israelite army, Saul included, were terrified, were deeply shaken. Meanwhile, during this 40-day period, David, he's at home doing what he's supposed to do, taking care of the sheep. But his dad comes to him and says, David, I have a mission for you. Your brothers are off in battle. I want you to take some food from home and take it to them and feed them. So David uh, comes to the battle. He's got food for his brothers. He's not really old enough to fight in the battle at this point. He's hanging out with his, his dad at home, you know, taking care of the sheep. But when he comes to the battle, he hears the men of Israel begin to talk about this, uh, you know, the, the giant and what's happening. And then they begin to talk about that there's a reward for anyone who will go out and fight Goliath. So skip down to verse 26. So David asked the soldiers standing nearby. What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? And then listen to this. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? Who is this guy? Like, I know he's nine feet tall, but who is he that he is allowed? Who is this guy that we're just allowing him to defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? See, David's first reaction is not fear. Saul and his men, their first reaction is fear. David's first reaction is not fear. It's actually a righteous anger. It's a righteous indignation or or a holy discontent. This is the same characteristic that Jesus displayed in John chapter 2, whenever Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the the money changers uh, tables that are there. Jesus comes in and he sees that the house of God is no longer being used as a house of prayer, but it's being used for people to exchange money and there's, you know, there's theft going on. And Jesus has this righteous anger, this righteous indignation says, this is not right. This is not okay. And something has to be done. That's what David is experiencing here. He's saying, why are we allowing this pagan who doesn't even uh, fear God? Why are we allowing him to, to defy God himself? This is not okay. I think sometimes we, we fail to step up and into the fight of faith because we're just not bothered enough by the injustice taking place. There's a coworker 
It's being belittled by another one. You know, there's someone at work that they, they feel like they have to flex their power or, you know, have to show themselves to be a man or something. And they are, they're constantly belittling or making fun of someone. And we're like, ah, that's not really cool, but I don't really care enough about it to step in and say, stop doing that. There's someone maybe, in the, you know, in the neighborhood or at work or at school or something that you can kind of see like they're, they're just they're, they're stealing just little bits of things here and there take a piece of candy from there or that work. They take some work supplies home or whatever it may be. And or they're just like, hey, we're going to go to lunch. And it's, it's on the company, even though we don't talk about anything company related or whatever it may be. There's just this little bit of theft. And we're just like, yeah, I mean, I'm not the one doing it. So it's all right. Like, I don't, sometimes we're just not bothered enough to step in and say, that's just not right. David shows up and he's like, this is not right. He is deeply bothered. He says, why are we allowing this to even happen? Look at verse 28 as we continue on. But when David's oldest brother, all right, don't you just love older brothers? Who are all the younger siblings in here? Younger siblings, you have an older brother specifically. Yeah, yeah. What jerks, you know? Just kidding. Adam, my brother, I love you. I mean, you were a jerk to me a lot growing up, but I still love you. And we've, you know, we've, we've, we've dealt with it. But uh, David's older brother, he heard David talking to the men. And then he is angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? Spoken like a true older brother. Listen to him. I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. See, there's another another ploy of the enemy here we see. It's to get us to believe we're disqualified because we're not perfect. See, the enemy will often distort the truth. See, David is not prideful. David is not deceitful. He's confident and he's wise. And so the the enemy uses his older brother, because sometimes the enemy uses people. He uses the worst in people to bring hurt to us. He uses David's older brother to try and distort the truth and say, I know you're, you're prideful, you're deceitful. But in verse 31... Look at this. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for us. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. I love this. David's older brother's like, what are you even doing here? Just go take care of the little sheep. And David just pretty much ignores him. And he's like, where's the king? Let me go talk to the king. Don't worry about this guy. I'll take care of it. All right. Verse 33. Saul replies, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. He says, don't be ridiculous. See, the next strategy of the enemy we see here is to get us to believe that we're too weak for the task. Say, this is ridiculous. You can't win that battle. It's too far gone. You've struggled with this for too long. You're not going to overcome it. You're not going to have victory. You're not going to defeat this giant. It's ridiculous. There's no way. I also want us to take note here of how small-minded people full of fear can be. When someone is overcome with fear, their mind begins to really, really narrow. What they think is possible begins to shrink. And shrink and shrink. Saul here is terrified. We read that. The, the, pe- the men, they're terrified. 
They're not trusting God. They're very small-minded. Number one, if you're taking notes. The first key, all right, to fighting giants is we have to refuse to be intimidated. The first thing is we have to refuse to be intimidated. See, the enemy's plan is to discourage and to bring fear so that we don't step up and into the fights worth fighting. We must refuse to be intimidated. Whatever the enemy is using to bring you fear is just a bluff. It's just a bluff. He's using it to bring you fear, but it's not the truth. Verse 34. David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Does David sound intimidated? No. He sounds full of courage. The reason why David is not intimidated is because, number two, the second key to fighting giants is you have to fight the small giants first. See, David had fought the small giants in his life already. He had already defeated the lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. He'd already done it in in private. So these small victories, these small giants that he had faced, that he had already defeated, they prepared him. So what he had done in private prepared him for now to take on the giant in public. Boldness and faith in the face of giants comes from past victories. Strength of character in difficult times comes from small victories. Trusting in God for the big victories comes from seeing God be faithful in the small victories. This may, story may sound a little trivial, but it was kind of a, a big deal in my life. Uh, we had moved from Colorado to Oregon, and we had taken over a church there. So we were the, the senior pastors now of a church in Oregon. And I began to just, you know, kind of feel the stirring in my heart that God wanted to do some things in me and wanted to increase some stuff uh, in my own life. And I, I began to realize that in the church world, all right, at church and with Christians, I was very comfortable. You know, I was confident in what God had called me to, to do and who he had called me to be. But when I kind of left the church circle, the church bubble, I had grown up in a pastor's uh, house, went to Bible college, entered into full-time ministry right away. So all I knew was the church world. And I wasn't real comfortable in the world outside of the church world, outside of the church bubble. And there'd be times where I'd be flying on a plane, you know, somewhere, and I'd sit next to a stranger and they'd ask, we'd start talking like, well, what do you do for a living? And at the time, I, when I was pastoring uh, for many years, I also owned my own business doing website design and graphic design. And I would regularly say, like, oh, I do website design. And I wouldn't even tell them I was a pastor. Like, I was just kind of worried of what they would think of me. And, like, I didn't, didn't want to. And I was just really insecure. And so we moved to Oregon. And, and I'm, I'm really feeling like this stirring on my heart to, to begin to reach people who don't even go to church and have no frame of reference for that. And so God begins to work on me and begins to talk to me about some of the insecurities I have. And so I really felt like this prompting from the Holy Spirit to take this very small step. And it's something I read in a book and it really resonated with where I was at. And that, so I was going to start going to coffee shops and doing my devotions instead of at the church or in the prayer room. I was going to start doing my devotions at coffee shops. So I'd go to a coffee shop and then 
for me, the first couple of times, like I would just take and read on my iPad, you know, and then I just felt like God was like, you know, you could be reading anything on your iPad. Take your actual Bible. So I took my actual Bible to a coffee shop and I took my journal and I would sit there and I'd get coffee because direct connection to Jesus is through coffee all the time. Uh, So I'd get my coffee and I would open my Bible and then I would just read scripture and I would do my journal and my devotions in a very public place, not in the church world. And the first few times, like I was really nervous, just really nervous. Like what's someone going to say to me? Is someone going to come up and like spit on me or someone going to come up and want to have like some super long conversation? I'm just trying to get my devotions in. Like what's going to happen here? So I would go there and after the first few days went by and no one really bothered me. And I was like, oh, okay, it's not that big a deal. Then I'd keep going and then no one would bother me. I was like, oh, okay, like not a big deal. And then I remember the first time I was probably a couple weeks into it. Someone sat down next to me and then looked over and was like, oh, are you, what are you reading? And I was like, oh, I'm, so I'm reading the Bible. They're like, oh, the Bible. Okay. What, so what are you reading in the Bible? And I began to talk a little about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, like yeah, I went to church when I was a kid, but haven't really been in a super long time. And I was like, oh, really? And I just had this conversation with this person. And I remember I left and all these thoughts in my head of what I was going to be, how I was going to be treated by someone, you know, and let's uh, be real. This, this was not Alabama. This is not the Bible Belt you know, where most people, you know, probably been to church or at least say they go to church or grew up in church. This is like, you know, very not that way, Pacific Northwest. And so I'm really thinking like people are going to hate me because I'm a Christian. This person just had a very nice conversation. And I leave there and I thought, well, that wasn't too bad. So I did this for months. I would just go. We ended up having all kinds of conversations, could tell you tons of stories. But the real thing that happened is in me, this confidence in my faith grew exponentially because I stepped out of my comfort zone and just read the Bible in public. I'm not saying you need to go and do that. Like I said, that that was just my personal journey. But for me, it was this small battle that I needed to win, this small victory that I had to carry. And then all the conversations I had through those months with people that never been to church, people that had been to church, the people that I was able to talk to and even pray with, out in opening a coffee shop months after I had originally started would have, all those stuff would have never happened if I hadn't have won that small victory of just going there, opening a Bible, reading it in public and realizing that I'm not going to die. And no one's going to hate me, you know? And maybe if they did hate me, like whatever. I mean, there's some people that didn't necessarily, they'd like, they'd say rude things of like, oh, you're reading the Bible. Like, oh yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't believe in that crap. You know, I wouldn't even use the word crap necessarily. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I do. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, have a great day. Uh, but it was a small victory in my life that then prepared me for planting a church. We moved to, after Oregon, we moved to California and we planted a church in California. Let me tell you, one of the things you have to be able to do when you start a church from scratch is you have, you have to be able to talk to people that you don't already know. Because when you move into a city and you don't know anyone, everyone is someone you don't know because you don't know anybody. But it was a small victory that in my life that I gained this self-confidence in my faith and who Jesus was, but also that I can talk to other people that don't know Jesus about him, not in a church context, just out in the world. And then we saw some huge fruit uh, from that. You know, another small victory in my life um, happened in sports because I played lots of sports growing up. And there's one sport, I'm just going to be honest, that's super easy to cheat at. 
and that's golf. And if you've never played golf with a bunch of pastors, you can go play golf with a bunch of pastors. Somebody's going to be cheating. Yes, even among the pastors. I played golf with our pastoral staff in Colorado. We'd go play quite a bit. And uh, me and one of the other pastors, we were the, by far the, the two best golfers on the staff. So it was like always this competition between the two of us is who was going to win. And I didn't care that much about it, but he really, really cared about it. He really cared about beating me in golf. That's just because I was a little bit better than him. Like not a lot, but a little bit. You know, like nine times out of ten, I would win. And so, uh, because I was just better. <laughs> Talking to you, Michael Sweet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was a little bit better. But every time we go, there's this competition. I remember there's a very specific time that we, we had, you know, played the, the, almost the whole round. We're going into the, to the, the 17th hole. And our senior pastor at the time had kept up with us, which was rare, but he had kept up with us. And so going in the 17th hole, he goes, all right, the three of us are really close. Whoever loses has to buy the other's lunch going in the 17th hole. And I'm like, no big deal. I'm way better than both of you. Got this in the bag. And over two holes, I didn't play the best golf, but neither did the other pastors I was playing with. But when we go... At the end, they're like, what did you get on that hole? There was this, this, I would love to say this small part of me. It was not small. There was this gigantic part of me that just wants to be like, they didn't see that extra stroke. I could just say I got a bogey or a par, and I know that I would win this. And I, but in that moment, I was like, I, I need to be honest. And it was this moment of, do, am I going to have integrity? Even Am I going to be honest when it doesn't benefit me? Because they don't know. And I said, here's what I got. And I was honest. And we got to hole 18, and I said, here's what I got. And I was honest. And Michael beat me that day because he cheated. (laughs) And he was not honest, and I know it because I was counting his strokes. But either way, JR lost because he was worse than us, so he bought lunch. So that was fine. But it was this moment where I don't really know if he cheated. I mean, I really believe to this day he did, but I'm not going to say, like, I don't really know. But the point is, for me, it was this moment of when no one really knows and no one can call me out on it, am I going to be honest? It's a small victory that I needed to overcome and I needed to be honest because there had been times in the past when I was playing golf that I lied and I cheated. And you have too if you've ever played golf. You know it. You know it. They're like, oh, I hit that in the woods. We'll take a little mulligan. That's cheating. You can't actually do that if you're playing versus other people and it's a competition. We should move on. I played golf real quick with my dad and his friends recently, like a month ago. And they're all much older now than I, I used to play with them as a kid. You know, and they were like in their 40s and now they're all in their 60s and 70s. And so when you're in your 60s and 70s, you take like 15 mulligans a hole. It's just old man golf. And I was like, oh, we're playing old man golf. All right, like I can do this. I'm going to beat all of you guys. I didn't. They were still better than me. But verse 37. We're getting back. David, all right, he says, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right. Go ahead and may the Lord be with you. All right. Verse 38 through 40, what happens here is Saul says, but if you're going to go, 
you got to use my armor. So then David puts on Saul's armor. He puts on the helmet. He puts on a coat of mail. He gets it all ready. He gets Saul's sword, you know, strapped onto his body. But then very clearly, David tries to walk around and it's clear like this armor was not built for David. This was built for Saul. And if we, by reading the story of Saul, we know Saul was really, really tall. He was, they actually said, like, whenever you look out, you would see Saul. Like, he stood ahead above everyone else. Like, he's a very tall man. David, at this point, he's not even a man. He's just a boy. So this armor is way too big for him. And David says to Saul, he's like, I can't go in these. Like, I can't do this. I'm not used to them. And then he picked up five smooth stones. I know there's only four keys today, but he picked up five stones. Five stones. And puts them into his shepherd's bag. Here's the thing. We're not supposed to use the weapons and armor that was built for another to fight the giants that we're supposed to fight. So many times we look at other people and we see their great gifts, we see their abilities, and then we try to be them, we try to be like them, but their armor doesn't fit you. Their armor doesn't fit you. Verse, second part of verse 40 here. It says, then, so David here, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. See, the weapons that David brings to the battle, they don't really seem to match up to the challenge. Goliath, this nine-foot man of war that has a sword and and a spear and, and shield and all this kind of stuff, and David just walks up with like a stick and then a slingshot. But David has a secret weapon. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the same secret weapon. It's called the power of God. Here we now, we're getting to the good stuff here. Verse 45, David replied to the Philistine. He says, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, listen to this, the Lord will conquer you. The Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. I love this part. In years past, I thought, I wish I could have lived in the Old Testament so I could go out and say these things to people and it'd been okay. Verse 47, and everyone assembled here, David's talking, everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But listen to this. He rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. The Lord will rescue you, but not with a sword and not with a spear. He says, this is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. Basically, David says, You don't scare me. Yeah, you have earthly power. You have some earthly strength, but it doesn't faze me because there is a supernatural power, a heavenly power that I have access to that you don't. And there is nothing physical and earthly that can stop the supernatural power of God. And then he says, God will conquer you. God is the one who's going to do this. It's his battle. It's his victory. The Lord is going to rescue us, which leads us to number three. Don't try to fight without God. When facing a giant, don't try to face the giant without God. See, most of us, we probably know this story. We know the story of David and Goliath. 
You know, we know that David was a young boy and then he ends up killing Goliath. We, we know this. And we so often think that this is a, the story here is about David and Goliath. But the real story that David is trying to hammer home to the Philistine, to Goliath, to everyone he, that, within earshot and to us today, is that this story is about God and Goliath. The story isn't David and Goliath. It's God and Goliath. Because God is so much bigger, so much more powerful than any giant you will face in your life. Any giant you're staring at, you say, it's too big. There's no way I can get the victory. I can't overcome that addiction. I can't repair that relationship. My kid's too far gone. Whatever it is, whatever that giant is you're facing, it's too big. If it's you and the giant, it's too big for you. But if it's God and the giant, the giant's not even, not even the size of an ant in comparison to God. It's nothing. This story is a story of God and Goliath. He just uses David to see the victory. You know, I've tried to do many things in my life without God and accomplished very little. But when I've said, all right, God, here's the giant. Will you help me? I just spend time with God. I lean back into God and I allow him to direct and guide and to fight on my behalf, amazing things begin to happen. Uh, back when we were in Colorado, we were moving from one house to another. And this, the story's too long uh, to tell the whole thing, but it, it got really, really stressful, uh, crazy stressful. I mean, to this day, Brooke and I would talk about like it was the biggest fight like we've ever had. We had three days to find a house because our house, we'd already sold it and signed, you know, like a date we had to be out. And so like all this stuff was going crazy. And we're trying to figure out which house to move into. And it's Friday afternoon, like 4.50. The banks close at 5 p.m. And at 4.50, we're trying to make a decision. Are we going to purchase this house we had looked at? And it was a foreclosure. So there were some unknowns and we're, we're doing all this praying, trying to figure it out. And it was so, it was very, very stressful. But, in that moment, thankfully, uh, the person we were working with, our realtor, was went to the church, and she was a believer. And so she had called me at 4.50, and she's like, hey, here's the counteroffer, and here's what's going on, and blah, blah, what do you want to do? And I was like, I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm just paralyzed. I don't even know what to do. She's like, well, let's just pray. Call Brooke. You guys pray about it. I'll call you back in five minutes. God will tell you what to do. I was like, okay. So I called Brooke. I was like, hey, let's pray. So we prayed about it. And I was like, we had a piece about going for the house that... Uh, was had all these question marks and all this stuff. And long story short, we, we ended up getting in, uh, buying that house. And it, to this day, is the, the greatest blessing, miracle we've ever had. I can't tell you the whole story just because it's, it's too long. But just miracle after miracle after miracle, God showing up, doing things out of nowhere. It ended up costing us more than we thought. And the appraisal on the house we sold didn't come in. And so we didn't have as much money as we thought. And all this stuff happened. So we finally get into the house. And we're just feeling so blessed that we're there, that God had shown up. But... We had to sell our refrigerator as a part of the deal just to get into the house. And so we had a refrigerator in our garage at the other house that was like a 1980s, like used to be white, but now is definitely no longer the color of white, like gross cream, you know, type of thing uh, in this little fridge. And that's what we put into this big brand new house with all the stainless steel appliances because it's all we could afford, you know. And I remember we're sitting there after we had moved in. And uh, our uh, realtor, Jody, she had come over and she's talking with us. And she's like, you know, so glad you guys are here and all this. And she looks and she looks at the fridge and she's like, isn't that amazing? We're like, what? Like, isn't that amazing? And she goes, just think. 
when I come in here and I think about this house and I think about what all we've been through and what God's done and shown up and, and all this, she goes, I just look at that fridge and I think, that's what you guys could have done on your own and this is all that God can do. And I was like, man, so, so cool. I still hate the fridge, but great. But we kept that fridge the whole time we lived in that house. We couldn't really afford another one at the time. But we ended up listing the house for sale and we knew no one would buy it with that fridge. So then we went and bought a new fridge and put it in for someone else to get to use. But the point is the wisdom of Jody Randa in that moment. This is what you can do on your own, but look at all God can provide. When we try to fight without God, that's all we get is this old 1980s refrigerator, top-down thing that, you know, that barely worked. And say, but look what we can accomplish when God steps in. Don't fight without God. Verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Number four. Keys to fighting giants. You got to run to the fight. You got to run to the fight. You have to lean in, not away from difficulty. When life is hard, when marriage is hard, when relationships are hard, we have to lean into them, not away from them. There will be times when we want to turn and run. There will be times we're facing a giant and we want to act like Saul and those Israelite soldiers. Afraid, terrified, we out. We're going to go hide in our tents. But when we lean into the fight, that's when we see God work. I find it really interesting that early on Goliath says, send me a man to fight me. Send out your greatest, your strongest, your biggest man, your biggest champion. And God just sends a little boy. Satan always overestimates what it's going to take to defeat him. Goliath says, send me a man. God's like, a man, like a big, strong, like warrior. No, no, no. I'm just going to send this little boy. He's just going to have a slingshot. He's going to have a few rocks. And that's all we need. So the rest of this story, David runs out to meet him, takes a rock, puts it in his sling, flings it, hits Goliath. Goliath falls down. And then what I love, David didn't even bring a sword. When David goes to Goliath and he says, I'm going to cut off your head. He doesn't even have a sword with him. Like, what is he going to cut off his head with? David just already knows what's going to happen. Goliath falls down. David runs over, takes Goliath's own sword, cuts off his head. And then all the Israelite soldiers who were terrified, all the ones who were afraid, once they see Goliath has been killed, they all rush the Philistines and they slaughter them. Here's the thing. When you're facing a giant, you rely on God. You run to the fight. God shows up. The giant begins to fall. Your victory inspires others. David's victory on that battlefield inspired all the Philistine or all the Israelite army to defeat those Philistines. Your triumph will inspire others. When I was 15 years old, in between my sophomore and junior year of high school, 
I had to face a giant that I had been facing for many, many years. And the giant that I, that I was facing was just this intense anger. Now, I had a, a temper as a kid. I got into a lot of trouble in school. You know, I think still to this day, I probably hold the most record or the record for the most detentions ever by a seventh grade boy. I had 43 detentions in the first four months of school. Yep. Kids, my boys. Mm-mm. But I had this temper and I'd get angry. In fourth grade, I got so angry at my fourth grade teacher that I threw an eraser and I hit her in the head. No joke. True story. Yep, Mrs. Wright. We weren't friends. I was angry, like all the time. After my sophomore year, I had been dating this girl and found out that she had, you know, uh, started dating someone else at the same time. We had bought tickets to a concert to go to. And so she dumped me before that. And then she took my ticket that I had bought and went to the concert with him. I was really angry all the time. This was just like boiling over in anger. Like I was just mad. So then my youth pastor comes up to me and he's like, hey, hey Nathan, we're going to go to youth camp this year. And they're looking for some people to go down early and set up all the sound equipment at the thing. And I felt like you could be a good person to go down there and help them set up. And I was like, all right, sure. Like, whatever. I don't know what that means. But, but in my mind, I was like, I don't even know if I want. I'm just angry. I'm just, I'm furious all the time. I mean, I had a hard time controlling my temper. Uh, up until this point, and even though I was getting older and maturing, it was still, there'd be times where I would just, I would rage, you know, like, uh, like the dude perfect guy, like rage monster, like that was real life. And I go to camp, and I set up, and I'm around these, uh, you know, these like late teens, early 20s, young men who just love Jesus, and are just there like to help serve, and I help them, and we work all night long, all through the night, Sunday night, to get it ready for everyone else to arrive Monday morning and have the whole, uh, like we were in a hotel conference room. We had the whole thing set up for them to arrive and, and have the first service that morning. So we stayed up all night long and I'm out there helping and working with him and I'm tired and I'm exhausted, but I'm also seeing like there, there's this purpose in what we're doing. And even though it's exhausting, it's full of purpose. And so it was just, it was really exciting. But that week, as we go to the services I'm so tired the first couple of nights. Like, I'm not super paying attention or anything. And on the third or, or fourth night, I don't even really remember. I was so tired for just helping and set up the whole time and then going to camp and doing all this stuff. The speaker, he says, anyone who feels like, you know, that they're supposed to be a pastor one day, they're supposed to be in ministry, I just want to pray for you tonight uh, as well. At that point in time, I knew that was me. I knew that God had called me to, to do this. And this is something that he had a part of my life, even though... At the time, I'd kind of been running from it from a few year, for a few years. But I knew this is something God, you know, ha- had for me and it was a part of my life's purpose. So I go up there to be prayed for. And I remember, I'll never forget, the guy's like praying over people and he's like speaking all this super cool stuff, you know, like God's going to do this in your life and like prophesying over them and encouraging them. And it's really cool in that moment, if you're one of those people and you're being prophesied over and then everyone else is not, you're like, yeah, God's talking to me. So I'm I'm waiting for my moment and he comes up and he just whispers in my ear and he says, God said, you're going to be a gentle praying pastor. And then he walks off and I'm like, that's it. What? Like there's all that. That's it. But in that moment, I just felt the whisper of the Holy Spirit and said, 
You will not fulfill your purpose if you don't give me your anger. And I was like, okay, God, I'll, I'll give it to you and I'll let you have it. Now, I've never been angry again. Just kidding. <laughs> Except for that time that pastor cheated. We were playing golf. No. I've still been angry at times in my life. But I have, since that moment, in that season of life when I gave it to him, I have not struggled to control myself. Now, then I had children, and then they just make you angry sometimes. And I begin to think, if I had not given God my anger, if I had allowed that to compound and then had children with as angry as they make me, I, t- I'm t- I, I'm, I shudder to think how I would act to my kids if I hadn't given that to God. Thankfully, I did. Here, here's the thing. There was a giant that had to be defeated in order for me to live out my purpose. Some of you are facing giants, and God is saying, let me fight this battle for you. Let me go with you. On the other side of this giant is your purpose. There's no, uh, it's no mistake that David is anointed king in chapter 16 and then chapter 17, he defeats the giant. Because defeating Goliath was the first step in his purpose of being king. It was the first step in not only David's life, seeing he can defeat this giant, but also his name begins to be spread throughout the country, and people begin to know who David is way before any of them knew that he was going to be king. Some of you are facing this a, a, a giant, and God's saying, let me in there with you. Let's do this together. Run to the fight. Refuse to be intimidated. Make sure God is on your side and with you, and on the other side of this, there's purpose. Let's pray. The worship team would go ahead and come on up here. Heavenly Father, in this moment, I pray for the people in this room who are facing very real giants, who are facing hardship and difficulty that to them, in their mind right now, seems too big to overcome. I pray in this moment that you would bring courage, you would bring boldness, and that you would bring a renewed focus on intimacy with you. Father, I pray that those facing a medical diagnosis would know that you are greater than any sickness or disease. Father, those facing relationship turmoil that they would know that you are the restorer of all things God we we invite your Holy Spirit into our mind into our heart into our soul 
and we say, we are yours, God. Give us the strength we need to fight the battles we face. Help us to step up and into the fights worth fighting. Give us wisdom to know what those are. Would you stand with me this morning? Our prayer team is going to come forward. Our worship team is going to play. And if you're facing a giant, prayer is powerful. And our team here is here to pray with you, to pray for you. Maybe your family member is facing a giant, maybe a coworker. Come on up. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for them to see God do incredible things.